Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Hey, and thanks for listening in to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I am pleased to be joined today by Jared Bias. Hello. Hey, nice to nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jared, I should have mentioned this uh, before, but my mom, her maiden name is Bias, B-I-A-Y-S. So, oh, interesting. Yeah, you're you're lacking the I, and then uh, spelled differently. <laughs> but I wonder if there's any uh, connection there, family family history, you know, how names change over spelling and mm-hmm. generations. Anyway, uh, Jared, I'll tell you, I'll tell our folks a little about you. Um, he's a serial question asker and ideas explorer. His favorite phrases are okay, but why? And is there another way? And uh, I like the asking question, Jared. Uh, I'd say more, but uh, tell us about yourself because I'm struggling to read today. No, no problem. Yeah, I mean, for me, I grew up in, in a small town in Texas, live now outside of Philadelphia. I've been a professor, a pastor, um, started and ran a number of organizations, and now podcaster, author, and continuing to just be curious and, and try to keep asking good questions that help yeah. people move along in their faith journey. Yeah, I love it. Uh, tell us a little bit about your your faith journey, if you don't mind. Yeah, I would have grown up in, again, in a small town in Texas, which would have been uh, heavily Southern Baptist. So I grew up Mm -hmm. Southern Baptist, but also charismatic. My grandmother would have been more charismatic. And uh, then when I was in high school, I started going to a Presbyterian church by myself. I was always drawn a little bit more toward the intellectual Mm -hmm. uh, side of faith and uh, Presbyterianism. Uh, you know, offered that. And then I went to Liberty University, actually, in Lynchburg, Virginia, and yeah. got a degree in philosophy, and then went to seminary, which is what I had always wanted to do since I was uh, young, you know, just like most little 12 <laughs> and 13-year-old little yeah. boys, they want to yeah. go to seminary. And um, yeah, so I did that, and that's where I met Pete, and when I was a, I was a pastor at a non-denominational church, and so I've been a bit of a spiritual mutt. I'm never mm-hmm. really had a, a home within a certain denomination, uh, have, have found a lot of value in different traditions and different expressions. I'm currently a member of a, a Mennonite church. So, Oh yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, talk a little bit, talk a little bit, if you don't mind sharing kind of about the, what Christianity was for you in your youth and how that's kind of shaped, uh, and shifted over time. Yeah. Christianity was, it was interesting because I like to think of what was the profile of the successful Christian within my tradition. And there were two, because mm-hmm. I grew up Southern Baptist and charismatic. So on the Southern Baptist side, it was uh, knowing your Bible, because yeah. that tradition yeah. would have been all about the Bible and yeah. learning what it meant and uh, what does it mean for us today. But everything kind of revolves around that. And then my charismatic tradition would have been more about um, how we feel. Yeah. And how close and intimate and connected we feel to God through the Holy Spirit. And um, our gatherings were much more about uh, conjuring up emotions and feeling connected to God. 
And so that the successful Christian was one who could do that best. And mm-hmm. so that was really what shaped me was this, this idea of emotional connection to God and the Bible. I want to know, Jared, how good were you in a sword drill? I was, I was quite good, you know, not to be, not, I think you may be trapping me into yeah. being prideful here, but yeah. I was, I was pretty good. Uh, for our listeners who have no idea what, you're, what we're talking about, uh, sword drill was this thing. I don't know how you did it, Jared, but in growing up in my tradition, uh, you, I think you'd like hold the Bible above your head, like you're binding in your palm. And I have my Bible here, my trusty Bible here, just for, so I can visualize it myself. And then they'd say, what? Just they, they name off a scripture passage like mm-hmm. uh, Ezekiel 12, 2. And you just, you'd flip open your Bible, turn to it, and then whoever could read it off the fastest, you know, was the winner. So mm-hmm. good times. Jared, yep. I don't, this, I'm, I'm almost sad to admit this now, but, you know, in my Bible college days, I could, I could ramble off the 66 books, you know, probably backwards in my sleep. And now I'm just like, sometimes like, what comes after Proverbs? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, to be fair, you know, for me uh, going to seminary, I started reading my Hebrew Bible through uh, my favorite translation was the JPS, and mm, the Jewish Bible yeah. has a different order, so that really yeah. confused me. That really yeah. got me messed up. Yeah. And uh, d- tell us a little bit about kind of what your faith looks now and how that's different, if anything. I would call my faith much more grounded into faith. Uh, I would say physical and communal practices. That's mm. for me. Uh, my faith is embodied in showing up to a community and in everyday practices, uh, both in terms of how I treat others, like ethical practices, mm-hmm. um, but also liturgical practices. So we practice things like Sukkot or um, have various, you know, kind of rituals as a family that we invite others to participate in throughout the year around the uh, around the church calendar. And those have become really meaningful for us as a, as a grounding practice. Have there been any practices, uh, I'm curious, that you've missed out on because of COVID that are more communal practices that you particularly miss? I mean, certainly showing up to church. Yeah. Uh, that would probably be at the top of the list um, for sure. And yeah, I think that's anything related to, to community uh, would be a challenge. You know, we're going to be missing our, our Christmas Eve service and that's yeah. always been a special time and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, what is a spiritual practice that you've developed over the years or might recommend to others? I think, I think a spiritual practice for me, which may sound strange, is working on, um, I would call it self-talk. I grew mm. up in a tradition where guilt yeah. was important. Yeah, It was this, the, I would call, I always call it the moral sheriff. It mm-hmm. was there to tell you when things were wrong or right. And if you don't feel guilty, how would you ever know? Yeah. And yeah. I, I've, it's been a spiritual practice over the last five to 10 years of trying to eradicate guilt. And so what that looks like for me is uh, when I when I do something that I'm not proud of, instead of feeling, uh, I, or, you know, sometimes the guilt will just come, but mm-hmm. taking a minute of reflection and saying, mm-hmm. you know, what purpose is this guilt serving? Um, who am I in, in my faith? How does God see me? How do, you know, am I, am I fundamentally a good person um, who makes unintentional mistakes? Mm-hmm. Um, or am I a bad person um, who, of course, will do all kinds of wretched things all the time? And, and so that took a spiritual practice of 
that space between when I do something I'm not proud of and that guilt, taking a minute and reflecting on who I am and what purpose does guilt serve and instead trying to refocus on how can I make amends. Um, mm. So it's been a practice of, away from guilt because sometimes I think guilt can actually f- give us the excuse not to make amends. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I feel guilty. That's my punishment or whatever it is. But taking that break to say, okay, why don't I redirect those feelings of guilt and say, how do I help the other person understand that I am sorry and and take some practical steps in the right direction? So that's been a, a really yeah. important one for me. Yeah, I like that. Um, I grew up independent Baptist, uh, and we used to we used to like seriously would say like the Southern Baptists or the liberals, uh, which is always you know in hindsight is incredibly hilarious. Um, funny enough, our in Bible college, our big rival was an AG school, uh, so mm-hmm. it was a lot of fun, kind of bashing the charismatics all the time. Uh, but guilt is was very much kind of formative in my youth in early uh, adulthood too. So I really appreciate that that point you make about not just because for me it was kind of like you just kind of beat yourself over the head, and I don't know if that was a similar experience for you. Mm-hmm. And there was no real productiveness in that besides just kind of right. making yourself feel terrible. Right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about let's talk about your book, uh, "Love Matters More: How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Loving Like Jesus." Uh, talk about just to start off with, like, what's what's the why of the book? Who are you trying to he- reach? Like, what's what really kind of compelled you to put pen to paper? Yeah, the 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 why was observing my fellow Christians using this phrase, speaking the truth in love. Yeah, almost always as a weapon. Yeah, while the intention was about pointing out how we, you know, we need to do it in love. The phrase itself wasn't used in love, but was used to hurt or at least to excuse kind of jerk behavior. And that just yeah. broadened this brought this broader question for me or or this uh, realization that there were a lot of people in my life over the years who had helped me and mentored me without even knowing it mm-hmm. uh, by focusing on how we treat one another and how we love and pointing back to those parts of the Bible, which, as I learned, were way more prevalent than getting your doctrine right or getting yeah. your beliefs right. So I had I had these mentors, most of them women, most of them older women mm-hmm. in my congregation that would gently chide me for being so obsessed with these minor points of doctrine and belief and trying to get everyone to be convinced that I'm right and it's super important for you that you mm. become a super lapsarian like me or whatever yeah. it was at the time. <laughs> um, and instead focusing on the heart of the message of Jesus, which is about love. I have not heard the super lapsarian term in a while. Um, that's I don't even remember out, what it means to be okay. honest. I, I, it just was a word that it came from the recesses of mind. my Calvinism. Yeah. yeah. So I know it has something to do with Calvinism. I can't put my finger on it. Uh, something about it's that whole lapsarian thing has something to do with like how and when God foreordained humanity. Yeah, I, think I think that's right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fun. That's a fun word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when we were like, uh, just a, a quick story when we when I was in seminary, yeah. we would joke uh, because we would you know we'd all come in with coffee and stuff. So there's a running joke on whether we are pre-lactarians or post-lactarians, which meant <laughs> oh, do you put your yeah. cream before your coffee or do you put your cream in after you pour your coffee? So yeah, 
Jared, do you have a story in your book about like being summoned? I don't, was that in Bible college days about being summoned from down the hall to resolve theological disputes? And yeah, that would have been at Liberty. Yeah, that Boy, was that was an undergrad. Yeah, I would have. That made me speaking of envious. Like I would have loved to have that kind of level of. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Uh, in I went to a smaller Bible college, and it was uh, in the snack snack shop was where the in the corner table was all the serious like the, theological Calvinist discussions took place. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're we're not here to talk about Calvinism, so <laughs> please no, let's not. Yeah. Um. <laughs> One of the things, I mean, I guess this, we could tie this in, though. Uh, you talk about theological trauma in your book a little bit. And it, it brings back to mind, a, you know, a tra- traumatic event I had. I remember my freshman year at Bible college. It was like door devotions. And this, this, the senior, one of the seniors on the floor sat us down and was like, hey, Calvinism is it. It's the thing. God ordains some people heaven, some people hell. We just have to deal with it. And that was a traumatic experience for me. And I just, I remember like calling my parents mm-hmm. that night or the night, the next day and be like, what's the deal? Um, but you recount this, what I, to me was a really powerful story about um, your mom. Do you mind sharing more about that experience with your mom? Yeah, yeah. It was a, a particular event where I had, Again, been convinced of of Calvinism. We were talking about predestination, I'm sure, mm-hmm. and, and my mom being a Calvin, I mean, a charismatic, um, you know, and and someone who was one of those mentors in my life that I I should have listened to more growing up. That really just emphasized love and and didn't really want to be bogged down in the minor points of debate. And um, but I always pushed it and pressured it and and wanted to have these debates. And yeah, so uh, one night, you know, we were, we were having this debate, and and I pointed my finger at her and which was a trigger for her and yeah uh, you know she she slammed me against our back door which was um really traumatic for both of us i think we came very unexpected um and and eventually you know we we were able to to work it out and talk about what happened and uh, you know that was a, a watershed moment for me to recognize that what i hmm. wanted in that moment wasn't how that ended that 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 wasn't what i imagined that conversation doing or going or and yet it, while it was maybe a, a an extreme example of how those conversations ended for the most part most would end that way maybe yeah. not with physical anything physical but it would definitely end with finger pointing and anger and yeah where did it where did it get us so that was kind of the beginning of my journey with that i wonder i was thinking about this uh, i've reflected on this kind of same theme jared and i wonder if it's the same for you like when i think back you know 10 15 years ago when i was deconstructing and reconstructing uh, that's when i kind of, when i kind of became like the theological pain in the ass if i can be frank um and i think about it like for me it was kind of like an insecurity mm-hmm. and i wonder yep. do you feel the same way like about yourself retroactively and do you think that's a lot of times what this kind of thing revolves around like people are just kind of insecure about themselves i think there's I think it's probably one of two things, which for me is two sides of the same coin. So I mm-hmm. think there are some people who, for whom it's insecurity in terms of, I'm really unsure about my own beliefs. And yeah. when you question me, it, it pokes a hole. It, it's a sore spot. Yeah. I think for me, it was more about, which is a, still a certain kind of insecurity, but mine was about 
needing to be certain because I like to be in control. Mm. Yeah. So it was really important for me to get reality right. I sort of early on sort of climbing the ladder of what I need to be sure of to not feel surprised or embarrassed or, you know, I need to be in control of my environment. And so what better way than to be the master of this thing that the people in my life told me was the most important thing of of all in life, the Bible and God. Um, So I was on a search for uh, really kind of selfish reasons, which is I don't want to be, I like to be in control. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so something else you write in your book is that truth is a poor guide to love. And reading this as someone who grew up <laughs> fundamentalist, it was, you know, I was kind of reading this this book, your book through like the lens of like a recovering fundamentalist. And in some ways, like thinking back to my days in that, how I would have taken that then. So I kind of read that line. I'm like, whoa, tell me more about that. Yeah, you know, it came from this reading of, I think it's in First Peter. I mentioned it in the book. But I was reading it one day as I was kind of researching for the book and thinking through things. And it, it he goes through this list of things. So, you know, add to your goodness, faithfulness, add to your faithfulness. And he has this list of ingredients. And knowledge is one of those, but it's mm-hmm. in the middle. And the last one is love. Yeah. And so that kind of was a, a big moment for me to think, oh, wait, so to, the tool here is actually knowledge. The goal is actually love. Mm-hmm. But when we say telling the truth in love, usually 90% of the time I've ever heard that in my life, the implication was the other way around. Mm-hmm. It's fine to love, but the real goal is to get to the truth. Yeah, And Peter seemed to contradict that. And and that's what led on this journey through the rest of the Bible and say, wait, 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 wait a minute. What does the Bible actually say about love? What does it mm-hmm. say about truth? What does it say about the proper relationship between these? And it's not that truth doesn't matter. It's that when it becomes the end result, if it becomes the thing that we're after, then love can actually be left out of the equation. But yeah. if we think about love in this more robust way, then if I really want to love you, I can't put truth to the side. Truth is always an important component of love, but Mm -hmm. love isn't always this important component of truth in the way we've maybe traditionally, in my experience, uh, fabricated those. Sure. Yeah, because in my experience of that kind of phrase and that around that, it's kind of like I'm being loving by like hammering you with the truth. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. Exactly. I found there's a quote. I'm just going to read it directly from your book. Um, you write that the question we should be asking isn't, am I getting the Bible right? But what kind of life is our reading the Bible producing? And again, it's something to me, it's a powerful quote because, again, the, the context you and I came from, that would have been it. Am I getting the Bible right? And I mean, I don't know about you, but I've known a lot of people who think they're getting the Bible right, but are complete you know, not nice people, I'll say. I'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I think that's the—I have so many pictures when you say that. I kind of have a Rolodex of images of people in my life <laughs> yeah, who, yeah. who knew their Bible better than anyone, who yeah. would—they would—if someone came up to them and needed their help, but it was during their quiet time, they yeah. would say, I'm sorry, I can't help you right now. It's really important to me that I have my quiet time. And mm-hmm. what solidified that for me was a conversation I had, which I put in the book, with 
someone who was, uh, she had been in my youth group for a number of years and we were adults mm -hmm. at this time, but I was meeting with her. She had just come back from a, a mission trip and her, uh, she is doing so many wonderful things in her life that I knew about. I, I just knew, you know, through other conversations, she was, she was a helpful person. She was a loving and kind person. She was a very giving person. She was dedicating mm -hmm. time and energy and resource to helping underprivileged people. And her friends were giving her a hard time because she wasn't having a quiet time every day. Yeah, and I remember just thinking, I, I said to her in the moment, I said, well, what's the point of having a quiet time? What's it supposed to produce? Yeah. Well, it's supposed to produce, you know, good works and love. I'm like, you're doing that. So yeah. what's the tool here and what's the end goal? And I think we've made Bible reading an mm -hmm. idol. We've made it an end in itself rather than a signpost pointing to not just Jesus, but a life of following Jesus. Yeah, like that's what being a good Christian entails, not like are you doing, are you being Christ-like, we might say, but are you like those kind of sign markers? I'm I'm reading the Bible, I'm praying, I'm having my quiet time, I'm a good Christian. Meanwhile, you know, you're going out and being a total, I'm trying not to use language here, but. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you're doing well. <laughs> I mean, I try to keep this uh, PG most of the time, so. Um, but that gets to, uh, and then again, a broader point you make in the book that if the truth doesn't set you free, it isn't the truth. Yeah. To me, that's a powerful quote, probably the, the one that stuck with me the most from the book. Yeah. I mean, it, that comes from, again, this, well, I mean, just to be a little provocative, it comes from the yeah. intuitive sense that love should entail liberation and freedom mm. that, that's really what it comes from like I, i'm good in the in the book about pointing to bible verses because i think that's what a lot of the audience would want because that's yeah. where they get their ethic but for me it seems obvious yeah that if for us to call something love it can't include enslavement um and and what then what is freedom is a good question but uh, mm -hmm. but that's a, a question for a different time i think yeah yeah you you know it comes from Jesus' statement, you will know the truth, mm -hmm. and the truth will set you free. And for me, a long time, I thought, like w what you were saying earlier about people who just keep studying their Bible, yeah. is we think that that's saying, if you study your Bible, you'll feel free. Yeah. But it could just as easily just be reversed and be a criteria for how we determine what's true. If it doesn't set us free, it can't be true, because Jesus said, uh, mm. if, we, if we have the truth, it'll set us free. Yeah. Um, so we can easily flip that and say, well, if it's not, if I'm not feeling free, if I'm not, if I'm feeling enslaved and I'm feeling trapped and I'm feeling mm -hmm. like if I'm honest with myself, if I say anything in public, I'm going to be chastised. If I'm encouraged to shrink and make myself small, then it's yeah. probably not truth. Yeah. Now I got to ask you a hard question here. Uh, hopefully you prepped for it cause I put it on the notes, but it's kind of, it kind of like stuck with me the entire time I was reading your book. And I know like you kind of just alluded to, you wrote this book to kind of conservative leaning folks. Uh, and I don't know, I don't know if we're, how close we are to the same age. Uh, but I'm kind of a, you know, my formative years were in the nineties and early two thousands, you might say. And growing up in fundamental evangelical culture where so much of it was just like writing people off, um, you know, I remember like conversations about Steve Green, whether you could listen to Steve Green because 
you know, he was too liberal or his music was too worldly or whatever. You know, that kind of thing. Um, for our listeners who have no idea what Steve Green is, just Google him. Um, I kept thinking about, and I've thought this for the last several years, as someone who identifies as a liberal, mainline, uh, progressive Christian, do progressive Christians, liberal Christians, whatever word we want to use, like, do they need to apply these same principles? Oh, I would absolutely say yes. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, for me, especially now in 2020, which writing this book, I couldn't have anticipated. Yeah. But there is this sense where there is a progressive fundamentalism. Yeah. And I think that might be a new thought for people. But if we just exchange, there's the what we believe and there's the how we believe it. If we exchange the what from conservative beliefs to progressives, but we still hold the same posture of fundamentalism, which is my identity is wrapped up in what I believe. And if you question it, you're questioning my identity and I'm going to lash out and get defensive. Um, that that's what I want to get at is the tone, the posture, the, the existential, uh, place of our belief, not, not the content. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the first example of this I had early on was when I kind of went through my deconstruction and I started reading the new atheists, they were called at the time Okay, and they would just seem like angry jerks. Yeah. Well, I don't, I'm not going to exchange one thing for that. Like that just sounds like the same thing. We just swapped out belief in God for, I hate people who believe in God rather than I hate people who don't believe in God. I want to get at that hate, um, not the content. So yeah, I, I think absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I know Twitter is a bad example, especially in 2020, but it just it just pains me to see like, like this kind of same thing that I grew up with, of just like cutting people off. I mean, I know I know we bang on cancel culture fairly and unfairly, uh, and there's there's a lot of people who deserve to be canceled, uh, but also like, hey, I don't I don't I've studied I become a big fan of. Uh, Systems theory, I don't know if you study family yeah. systems theory, and I kind mm-hmm. of appreciate, like, so often, like, cutting people off is just a way of, like, avoiding our own anxiety mm-hmm. around the situation. And uh, so I, I guess maybe this is my own thing, and I'm pushing it on you. But, you know, personally, I just say, like, I hope, uh, again, growing up fundamentals, I just, it, it pained me how often we had to write off people and i remember like i remember sitting in uh in the library in bible college like i remember reading a book and one of the old professors walked by and he's like oh how about that book i'm like yeah it's kind of fruity and he's like yeah you can't take anything they say seriously and that's kind of how it was like if there wasn't complete alignment kind of going back to your point uh about these truths like you just wrote off everything they said and i i just i hate that because i feel like we're missing out on so much um and i the your point about love matters more kind of being the ultimate thing uh i think it's so much so much of a better principle to live by yeah and it it's about digging into those moments where we can write other people off and asking those self-reflective questions why Mm. um why do i feel like i need to write them off? what would be the harm right and this goes back to I don't know the tradition you grew up, I would guess, as independent Baptist. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a lot of keeping ourselves from influences. Yeah, so yeah. So I had to, you know, when I bought that Jay-Z CD without my parents knowing, once they found out, I had to break that sucker, you know? Like, 
Yeah. It was like, don't let this stuff influence you. And, mm-hmm. and to some extent, I get it when you're seven, yeah. eight years old. Like I have little kids. I, I don't want them watching certain things and doing certain things. Yeah. By the time my kids are a teenager, I'm going to do that less. By the time they're in their 20s, they're freaking adults. So they can do whatever they want. Yeah. Um, and for me, it's it's a sign of it's a sign of emotional uh, and maybe psychological or spiritual weakness hmm. to say I can't be around this because yeah. I will fall under the spell of some of the bad things. And I mean, the world is made up of things that aren't good or bad. Mm-hmm. They are good and bad. Yeah. And if we start breaking down things to say, I can't be a part of this because it's bad, but I can't be a part mm-hmm. of this because it's good. Inevitably what happens is I end up always being the good and they always yeah. end up being the bad. That's great observation. That's a great observation. And I, I do want to own my, what's the word? my social privilege and whatever as a, you know, straight white male, um, a lot of, you know, for a lot of our friends who are LGBT or people of color, um, it's a different story about sometimes what writing people off or cutting people off is a matter for their own personal safety, emotional, physical, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, we, I, I know you're hundred percent in agreement with that. Uh, but I just want to acknowledge that for our yeah, listeners. Yeah, boundaries, but, boundaries yeah. are important. And, and I think, yeah. but I think it's not just, um, we need to say that for people of color and LGBTQ. I think that's important. But there's also yeah, uh, yeah. spiritual trauma that we've all, like there are people in our lives too that don't get it. And that, that love doesn't mean that we just keep taking abuse. Yeah. Um, you know, I love that. I think it's Prentice Hemphill quote that says, boundaries are the uh, space at which I can love you and me simultaneously. And, yeah. and I think that's just important. Um, so boundaries can actually be the thing I need to be able to love mm-hmm. you well. So we're getting off topic here, Jared, but this is one of the, this is one of the, um, boundaries are one of the things that I remember most about being non-existent in, uh, did you, did you, did you watch that, uh, the documentary, Jeff Charlotte, the family that was on Netflix? Mm-mm. Okay. It was about this, this, uh, journalist, Jeff Charlotte, he helped produce this documentary based, I think, off a book or some reporting he did about this kind of like uber conservative religious political movement back 20 years ago in D.C. And there's this image um, from, or this kind of video from the story where th- this guy who's playing Jeff Charlotte, the, the character, gets like tackled by a bunch of guys. And it just reminded me so much of kind of like this forced vulnerability that happens so often in evangelical and fundamental spaces where it's like a prayer circle mm-hmm. and they're like, Hey man, we just want you to share your truth. And we want you, we're here for you. We love you. Going back to this whole like love thing, being manipulative. Um, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Sharing yeah, some of my think, own trauma here, I guess. <laughs> well, and you know, I think though, to be fair, and I think it's important that we have grace um, where I don't think, in my experience, there weren't a lot of people who were doing that intentionally. Yeah. They, they yeah. just didn't have the tools to do what they... I mean, it's really unfair that we we take average people and tell them, like, the mm-hmm. God of the universe is putting the weight of everyone's eternal salvation on your shoulders. Yeah, and, no pressure. Like, that's just not... It's not fair. And so we're, we're pushed into these situations where we think what we're doing is of like eternal significance and uh, it just doesn't seem seem fair so 
I would expect in a system like that that we make a lot of yeah really uh, profound mistakes. Uh, I appreciate so much that you said that, Jared. Uh, I was looking in the back of my bookshelves trying to if I could find the author. Uh, Robert Creech, I think that's who it was, uh, wrote a book on family systems theory. And he, he wrote one of the things that really kind of impressed me most and stuck with me about kind of using that same language about having grace for people. Like when we think back to our own family history and our challenges and just kind of acknowledging like your family, your parents, in most instances, we're just doing the best they could. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate your words about tools because I've often thought about that with my own parents. Uh, like they just didn't have good enough tools. Mm -hmm. Like when yeah. it's, when it's mm -hmm. basically just like take, you know, take two Bible verses and call me in the morning. Like at some point, like you're going to be limited in your parenting or spousal mm -hmm. skills, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the complicated thing is, of course, does that excuse them? Are there, are there some level of responsibility there? Yeah. And it's, it's all very, very messy. And I appreciate you keep yeah. waiting on family systems theory. Cause I don't, I don't mention this often, but my, you know, my day job is I'm, I'm a family business advisor. So I, oh. I work with families every day and that really informed a lot of even some of the stories I put in my book are in the context of of families who, you know, own a business together and things get super messy. So I deal with family systems theory quite yeah. a bit. What's the story about like the statistics on like a, a business passing from one generation to the next being low and then to that third generation is like microscopic, right? Something yeah, yeah. Like the, fir the first to the second is actually you get about a 30% chance. Uh -huh. um, and then the, the second to the third is about 14%. And then uh, beyond that, it's about three, three to 4% chance. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that could be another podcast, I guess, right? <laughs> yep. Well, let's, uh, let's take a break real quick, and we'll come back with some closing questions. Are you a worship leader who is going through a faith shift while still trying to produce 52 services a year? Are you a lead pastor who is dealing with high turnover on your creative team? Torn Curtain Arts exists to strengthen the creative soul of the local church by providing coaching, creative consulting, and interim worship leaders from our team with 20 years experience in the trenches of ministry. We help leaders get off the ministry treadmill of chasing Sunday after Sunday. Learn more about how we can help you and your team by visiting torncurtainarts.org. Is the church really dying, or is it dying to change? How can the church recapture what it was in the first century, a distinctive confessional community willing to stand against the status quo, to speak up against the empire, and to stand for the gospel? How can it do this in a 21st century context? This year, the Festival of Homiletics invites you into a conversation around how the promise of the gospel might shape hope and ministry for the future of the church. What is the role of preaching in forming the church of the future? Be inspired by God's word proclaimed by some of the nation's finest ministers and teachers. Experience the fellowship of hundreds of preachers. Learn and worship in an atmosphere that is dynamic, friendly, nurturing, and prophetic. Come renew, refresh, and recharge your spirit. Join the Festival of Homiletics this spring for the 29th Annual Preaching Conference. It will be broadcast virtually the week of May 17th to the 21st, 2021 and it's free to all who register enjoy over 30 sessions from some of the best practitioners in the business michael curry kate baller diana butler bass otis moss ii brian mclaren marilyn robinson adam russell taylor and so many more 
Register for free today at festivalofhomiletics.com. All right, we're back with Jared Bias. And uh, Jared, I always tell people you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to. So if you were Pope for a day, what do you want to do? What does that day look like for you? If I am Pope for a day, I mean, there's not a lot of real policy changes I don't think you can make in a day. So I'd probably just have mm -hmm. as much fun with that as I could. Um, That's a good answer. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. Uh, a theologian or historical figure, Christian figure, you'd want to meet or bring back to life? Yeah, I mean, I would. I have to. I have to go with. Uh, you know, Soren Kierkegaard would be someone oh, yeah. I would want to meet and and hang out with. He and I, we we haven't been as close. I'd say over the last five or ten years, but uh -huh. he, he was really my mentor in this journey, my guide in this journey of deconstruction. And um, so, I have a, a great deal of respect for Kierkegaard. Tell me quickly about the. How do you interpret it? Is it a leap of faith or a leap with faith? What's the what's the proper interpretation there? Yeah, I like what he says in, in Fear and Trembling there. He talks about uh, faith being on the strength of the absurd. And that was a mm. really important phrase for me. Um, so for me, I don't think of it in terms of leaps or, you know, that's that was one phrase he had in this larger compendium of thoughts on faith. And so I yeah. like this idea when he's talking about uh, the Abraham and Isaac story in, in Fear and Trembling, uh, where he says, you know, the knight of faith has faith on the strength of the absurd. And uh, that just, it still resonates with me today. It's something I think about a lot, um, the absurdity of faith. And mm. um, it's just, again, on this different register of how we exist and not so much what makes sense in our head all the time. Awesome. What do you think history will remember from our current time and place? I think it'll be, you know, it is, it reminds me of this uh, phrase, this idea from Phyllis Tickle, although... She got it from a bishop uh, at a church up in, here, I think it, near us, in Allentown, PA, mm -hmm. of all places, that uh, the church goes through a major shift every 500 years. And yeah. so, you know, even if we go back to, I was thinking about, we go back to, uh, in a presentation I give, I talk about, you know, the, the unified monarchy of 1000 BCE, and then we have mm -hmm. the exile around 500 BCE, and then the time of mm -hmm. Jesus is 500 years after that. And then, um, yeah. you know, we keep moving forward. 1086 is the great schism between the East and the West uh, Church, and then the Reformation 500 years after that. And, you know, 2017 is 500 years after the Reformation. So we're in yeah. this time of a great shift in faith formation. And I think that's what we'll look back on is is the shift over the next probably 100 years um, that that our faith expression is going to to take. Yeah. Uh, what are your hopes for the future of Christianity? Uh, my hopes is uh, are, I think, laid out in Love Matters More, is that we become a people of, um, a people of love expressed in how we behave toward ourselves and toward one another, that we let go of rules and pursue wisdom, that we let go of truth as an end and pursue love as the final goal. Awesome. Uh, last question. I'm going to spring this on you too. Since you brought up Kierkegaard, it reminded me uh, of a fun show he was mentioning. Are you a fan of The Good Place? I have, yes. And I was excited to see him mentioned there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I don't remember what season that was, but a fun show. I think show. he came up a few times, actually. Yeah. 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 Achidi was such a fun character. I loved him. <laughs> 
Um, where can people find out more about you and then where can they get the book? Yeah, so you can go to jaredbias.com. You can find out about me and the book there. But I'd also point people to uh, thebiblefornormalpeople.com where we have a lot of these conversations. We have a Patreon page, um, patreon.com front slash thebiblefornormalpeople where we talk about the best in biblical scholarship and what it means for us today as Christians. Yeah, uh, I would second the Bible for Normal People. Great show. I've really enjoyed Jared and Pete's work on there. Um, and uh, what, as we're recording this, it's mid-December, but uh, what's, your, what's your episodes coming up for, like, any exciting guests or topics for spring 2020? 2021? We'll, we'll, be, we, we'll be launching season five. We have some exciting guests. We'll start at the beginning of February with season five. Love it. All right. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time, Jared, and uh, may God's peace be with you and your family during this time. Thanks. Same to you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. But hey, before you go, do us a favor, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people. Thanks, and go in peace.